Welcome to another episode of Whatever We're Calling This, the podcast of comparative literature and cultural studies at the University of Arkansas. Today, we invited Dr. Daniela Eugenio to talk about archival research. Dr. Eugenio is an assistant professor at University of Arkansas. She holds a bachelor from University of Chieti in Italy, a master from University of Florence in Italy, and a master from the University of Padua in Italy. And of course, she holds a PhD from the City University of New York. Thank you, Dr. Eugenio, for accepting the invitation. Good morning, Guillermo. It is my pleasure to be here today and to talk about uh, my professional career and uh, my work at the University of Arkansas. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Well, no, thank you for coming. Uh, first question, uh, Dr. Eugenio. Um, how does archival research work? Okay, so that's a, a really nice um, uh, question. Uh, I think that archival research means getting lost almost in a fairy tale and uh, to look for something to discover. So usually when I do archival research, I of course know what uh, which items I need to look for in that specific archive, but I also uh, leave myself some space for additional discoveries uh, so that I can look more into what the archive can offer me. And um, so in, in a way, when I do research in an archive, my space and time do not exist any longer. And so I enter another dimension, another chronological dimension, which is um, the specific time of the document that I'm observing or the space that these documents uh, describe. And um, so I let the materials guide me and uh, show me elements that should be uh, of interest or that could interest me in a way that I had not anticipated before. Dr. Eugenio, uh, as a literature student, uh, well, in comparative literature and cultural studies, of course, there is this idea that we do not need to work with archives, that our main research are uh, novels, uh, poetry. So what can you tell uh, like new graduate students who are enrolling in, in, in this program or maybe any other program at the university? Uh, what's the benefit of working with archives? Well, again, that's, that's a really nice question. I think that even though you are working on a modern novel or even an early modern novel or text, it's always good to look at the original or at some editions of this novel. You can always discover something different that the printed text or the modern printed text can uh, tell you. Let's, for instance, uh, um, take an example. You are um, studying a novel which was published in the um, 19th century at the beginning of the 19th century. Uh, but you can, there are different editions of uh, um, these uh, novel and you can look at the differences of these different editions. And so maybe this can reveal something about uh, the text that you are working on. Um, uh, let's say it's in an edition in the uh, early um, 2000, but you can trace the history of the editions of this book. and. Uh, you never know. You can discover something that can be uh, useful for your research or for your approach. And also, um, this is more um, uh, present in early modern, and with early modern, I mean medieval, Renaissance and Baroque um, texts. So from uh, um, 
the Middle Ages up to uh, the um, um, beginning of the 19th century. Uh, but also in more modern texts, you can have additional glosses. Glosses are um, additions that are written in the liminal space of the page. So when the, when the page, uh, the, the, the white um, space um, surrounding the printed text, is a space where readers could write something like a note or write a little um, um, uh, something that they could uh, help them remember a specific passage or they could also draw something. Um, for instance, uh, in the early modern period, it's really um, uh, common to see a small hand pointing at some uh, specific uh, um, point in the text that should be of interest to the reader. And so that's also something that could be uh, useful for your research. And maybe it's not a specific uh, element that you want to um, explore in your dissertation, but still it's something that enriches your understanding of the text and can be, for instance, a nice footnote that you can add to uh, your paragraph. Great, uh, Dr. Eugenio. Uh, now, you mentioned dimensions, you mentioned that sometimes you're immersed into this archival research. So uh, what does archival research mean to you? Yeah, so um, archival research for me means uh, to find the problems and not just uh, look for them. Uh, with, uh, with these uh, um, uh, words, I mean that when I go to an archive, I have my, op my mind very open. And so, of course, I know, as I was, I was telling you before, I know what are the specific items that I need to explore more because they are part of my research, but I always tend to be very open because I feel that you know an archive can tell you more if you are not uh, very strict with what you need to explore and uh, you can have uh, these unexpected discoveries along the way um, and of course uh, there are drawbacks in this approach because you know you uh, you spend a lot of time doing this kind of research if you just look at some items or just one item and just and then you go away you need maybe a couple of days or maybe one week but if you look for something more you can spend weeks or months just to to write a footnote that can be something a little bit different than what you were looking for. Um, but yeah, so I think that this is something that I enjoy the most when I find something that it's not really specific to my research, but can enrich my research or can open a completely different aspect of another research. And so maybe it's an article or another project, and then maybe that could develop into a book. Um, and so I think that one of the best approaches uh, um, to uh, doing archaeology archival research is patience and perseverance. And, and then you will have these discoveries sooner or later. In this experience, uh, can you tell us more about an unexpected discovery you have found? Yes, sure. Um, so um, uh, one unexpected discovery, uh, um, I mean, I have uh, some of them, but one of them uh, um, took place when I was uh, um, working on, uh, on my MA thesis and I was in Italy at the time at the University of Florence. And I was working on the transcription of these uh, 16th century, end of 16th century manuscript, which was collecting proverbs, idiomatic expressions and maxims in Italian vernacular. 
And so I needed, to, in this manuscript, there were many uh, different handwritings, and uh, I, need, I wanted to attribute one of them to a um, noteworthy figure in, uh, Italian history, in, in the history of Italian language at the time, in the 16th century. And so I went to this archive in Ferrara uh, and I found many manuscripts where there were little glosses or an, a, just a, a word added in the marginal space with this specific handwriting. But you know, these discoveries were not helping me too much. I needed something more substantial in order to attribute this handwriting to this particular person, specific person. And so one day out of the blue, I uh, requested um, three orations that um, this um, uh, author, Leonardo Salviati had written in the, 16, uh, in the 1560s. And uh, the second of these oration at the end had a few, pages, manuscript pages in this uh, handwriting. These pages were loose, but they were sewed together with the printed text of the oration. So which meant something, something important. Why were they there? And they were there because this oration was written by Leonardo Salviati and these loose papers were handwritten by Leonardo Salviati. And why could I say that? Because this letter was very, was written in a very cursive form. Um, there were many um, words uh, crossed out and then entire lines even crossed out and rewritten and many marginal notes, which means that it was just the um, something that Salviati had written on the spur of the moment. Uh, and, uh, and that was the, uh, one of the main pieces um, to tell that uh, Salviati had written that letter, not someone else who was coping um, a, a previous letter or was writing what Salviati was uh, dictating to him. That sounds great, Dr. Duginio. So um, I was curious, okay, that was your, your project. You already, you already finished that part. So what are you working right now? Yeah, uh, right now I'm um, working on my uh, on on a project uh, on, on which will be my project for the next years. Uh, so this is a project about uh, um, text and image. So my specialty is uh, the study of proverbs and idiomatic expressions in uh, the early modern period. So in my previous uh, um, uh, research, which is, um, uh, by the way, my um, uh, dissertation, my PhD dissertation, I studied the proverbs as cultural elements in a literary and in didactic texts. And then one of my unexpected discoveries at the time when I was working on my dissertation was um, finding out that many proverbs had a visual component. Now, at the time in my dissertation, that was just a footnote um, in one of my chapters. Uh, and uh, one of my reviewers told me that that was a really interesting aspect of the relationship between a text and image specifically related to proverbs and maxims. And so I decided that I should look for more uh, on this topic. And this led to my um, second project. So this second project is uh, the exploration of idiomatic expressions, maxims and proverbs as textual elements, but also as visual elements. And I look at different genres uh, from the beginning of the 16th century up to the beginning of the 19th century, because there are also examples a little bit later um, of these genres. So one of them is calligraphy specimens, which means copy books where 
future secretaries in court or future writing masters were practicing different scripts and different handwritings in order to become better in um, these um, skill. Many of the examples that they were practicing were written in a different scripts, but they uh, included moral maxims, moral proverbs, and moral verses in a way. Um, so in a way, when they were writing, they were also instructed in the more in the in the more they were they were instructed in the moral aspects of their society. And so they would become better citizens in the end. Um, so what I'm interested in in this project is the way these genres that I'm considering are produced. And so how the relationship between the text, the proverb and the maxim and their visualization is um, taking place, then how they are received and how they are then interpreted because you always need to interpret the text and the image together. And this, for instance, is also um, very um, uh, useful when I look at emblems. So emblems are uh, made of an image and a text, so the model, and another text, so the explanation of the, um, of the emblem, which explains both the image and the model. Uh, the model is usually sometimes a, 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 like a normal sentence without any moral um, instructions, but some of the time we have proverbs and maxims and there is a, something related to a moral behavior that or a social norm of conduct that people should uh, maintain. And uh, uh, so I look at these emblems specifically and I explore how these emblems are produced, which text is used, which symbolic and allegorical uh, um, elements are introduced in order to make the image more um, understandable to uh, the people who are looking at, at it and how they were interpreted. And so how the text helped the readers understand the image and the model or how the text was challenging this image and this um, uh, model. Okay, Dr. Duginio, now I see the connection between text and image and what you're doing with your uh, project. Now, I have a, a, a follow-up question that maybe some graduate students could be interested. So, we finish our PhD. We have our dissertation. So, after having our dissertation, how we do this transition between the dissertation and next projects, maybe books, articles. So what would be your suggestions for current graduate students at the University of Arkansas? Sure. So, well, I don't have the perfect answer to that question. It's, um, you know, everyone can tell you um, something, uh, I guess, based on their own experience. Uh, but this is what I did when I was a PhD student. So I, while I was working on my dissertation and before completing my PhD, I um, published one section of what would become what would have become my um, dissertation in a journal. So I could have uh, reviewers read that um, uh, article and reviewers that were different from my dissertation reviewers, and I could have a publication that I could then use for my dissertation. And that was a really nice way to um, publish for for sure something before you know I graduated. 
and also have something ready when I was then working on my dissertation. Of course, my dissertation enlarged that article much more. So that article became a much longer chapter in my dissertation. So the article was not exhaustive on its own, but still it was a beginning approach to you know, that um, research that I was starting to um, uh, conduce. And then after um, uh, completing my PhD, I uh, decided to turn my dissertation into a book. Um, so usually you uh, you understand from your reviewers if it's something worth doing or not. I mean, your, your reviewers will tell you, uh, you know, you need to work a little bit more or maybe you should, you know, uh, look at some something more. And so, um, uh, you, you understand the, where, where are the, the voids that you need to fill in your dissertation in order to make it a book. Um, so I would say that maybe the first step is the turning your dissertation into a book, and uh, which is not something very complicated. You just need to switch your mind a little bit. You need to consider that your dissertation is not a a piece of work that you write for your reviewers and your readers, but it's for the big public. And so you need to make it marketable, um, which means that you need to eliminate all the jargon. Uh, you don't need to uh, enumerate and list all the readings that you have done because you know the public already knows some of those um, uh, readings. And you can embed those readings in your reasoning. Um, and um, yes, you usually, I mean, the dissertation can be too specific in a way. I mean, at least mine was, mine was too specific and I need to cut something that was too much for a book. But it's a very nice process because you really switch your um gearing and you uh, you look at your book as I mean, your, your dissertation as a book as an object and in the end it becomes uh, an object which is not your dissertation any longer but it's an object that other people need to use so that would be my first suggestion so again if you want to stay in academia or if you want to you know pursue um, a, um, an academic uh, career and a research related career that would be the first um, thing to do so publish your dissertation and then when uh, while you are doing your research for your dissertation always have uh, you know a file or a piece of paper where you jot down something interesting that you read in the text that you are analyzing or um, uh, you know a topic that you find particularly interesting um, or a secondary source that um, is um, that struck you in a way or in another, because then one of those ideas can become a future project. Um, yeah, or sometimes maybe I see uh, in some of my colleagues, the second project or the second book is an expansion of the first book. So if the first book is more related to one nation, for instance, I don't know, Spain or uh, Latin America, then you can have a more global uh, approach. Uh, and so you study the same topic in a more, um, again, a global uh, perspective. Um, or you can completely change your um, uh, your topic and so th that's I mean there is nothing bad about it you just need to start again the same process that you do when you are writing your dissertation but if it's something that interests you why not oh thank you for all the suggestions uh Dr. Eugenio 
Uh, thank you for uh, all these uh, suggestions. They are very uh, valuable for graduate students. Now, I just want to switch, and this is going to be the last part of our episode. And even though it sounds a little bit spooky, uh, uh, this is going to be the personal part of Dr. Duginio. Dr. Duginio, next question is, um, can you tell us one word in Italian or in Spanish that activates a memory from your childhood? I'm going to start. In my case, my favorite word in, in Spanish is butifarra. I cannot describe what butifarra is. It's, it's food and it's like a little kind of like sausage in little balls. So if people are interested on it, you can Google butifarra and then you can have more ideas about it. So that reminds me about my, my country, my city, my family and my childhood. Is there anything like that that you might connect? Well, that's a really interesting question. I do have two words. Okay. So can I tell both? Yes, sure. Okay. So one of them is chiacchierare, uh, which is uh, chit-chat uh, in, in Italian. And uh, it's a very onomatopoeic word because it reproduces the chit-chat of people uh, talking a lot because they tell me that when I was young, I used to speak a lot and so to talk a lot which maybe uh, makes sense since I'm, I'm a teacher now so probably I, I enjoyed talking a lot since childhood uh, but this is something uh, of a, an indirect memory because I don't remember it but something that really remembers me of my country and of the place where I used to live uh, in the first uh, 20 years of my life is mare sea because I used to live on the beach and my I mean my parents house and my house was um, probably three minutes away from the beach. And so it's something that I miss a lot here in Arkansas. Right. At Mare, Mar in Spanish, they are pretty, mm -hmm. pretty similar. Now, because, I, I, of course, my native language is Spanish. Uh, what was the first word that maybe you remember that you had in contact with maybe English or Spanish or any other language? Uh, I will start just to give you some time. Uh, with Italian, uh, like I, I am an ordinary a person. So the first one I remember is Francesco Totti. <laughs> so, so the people that do not know, he's a very famous soccer player, an Italian player. He used to play for the uh, Milan. So as a child who was in love with soccer, uh, that was the first uh, connection that I have with Italian soccer. What about you, Dr. Duginio? Yeah, I, I don't know about Spanish. I don't have a memory about Spanish for sure. I have, um, French has been more present in my uh, you know childhood and my first um, years of life in Italy, but I don't remember the first word in French um, uh, as well. But I remember one of the first words in English. When I was starting to study English, there was this dialogue. I was in the middle school, so we were young. And uh, we needed to uh, memorize this dialogue and one of the, these dialogues and one of the dialogue was uh, um, um, uh, included uh, um, the two young boys, more or less adolescent as we were. And they were, I think they were brothers and sisters, a brother and sister. And uh, the sister was saying, was playing with um, her brother and was saying, I'm a witch. Grrr. 
And so I remember this line <laughs> because I thought that witch was a really nice word. And uh, I don't know why. I mean, the, the sound of this word, witch, was yes, really the nice. sound, right. Well, Dr. Eugenio, thank you very much for accepting the invitation and thank you for sharing your research, your experience and your future projects. Well, thank you so much, Guillermo. It's been a pleasure and uh, good luck. Well, it looks like the episode is over. Thank you to the Program of Comparative Literature and Cultural Studies for the support. Thank you to Dr. Eugenio for accepting the invitation, and I hope to join us next time in another episode of whatever we're calling this. Nos vemos.